welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Caitlin Sheese. Caitlin is the author of the recently released book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. She writes about theology, politics, and culture at places like Christ and Pop Culture, Christianity Today, CT Women, Relevant, Sojourners, Fathom, and the Christian Research Journal. Caitlin is the guest of the fourth annual Reimagining Faith and Public Life event at John Brown University. Good morning. I'm Daniel Bennett, Associate Professor of Political Science, and I'm delighted to introduce this morning's chapel speaker, Caitlin Sheese. In September 2017, John Brown University brought two Christian voices to campus to discuss the relationship between faith and political and cultural engagement. We called the event Reimagining Faith and Public Life. Now in its fourth year, this annual event challenges students and members of our community to think about how faith informs and motivates political action, especially in an era of hyper-partisanship and polarization. We've been fortunate to have been joined in the past by Christian speakers from across the ideological spectrum, from Rod Dreher and David French to Michael Ware and Jamar Tisby. This year, we're blessed to be able to host Caitlin Sheese, a 2016 graduate of Liberty University and current master's student at Dallas Theological Seminary for a discussion of her new book, The Liturgy of Politics. Here is a summary of the book from the publisher's website. A generation of young Christians are weary of the political legacy they've inherited and hungry for a better approach. They're tired of seeing their faith tied to political battles they didn't start, and they're frustrated by the failures of leaders they thought they could trust. At the same time, spiritual formation, and particularly a focus on formative practices, are experiencing a renaissance in Christian thinking. But these ideas are not often applied to the political sphere. In the Liturgy of Politics, she shows that the church's politics are shaped by its habits and practices, even when it's unaware of them. She insists that the way out of our political morass is first to recognize the formative power of the political forces all around us, and then to recover historic Christian practices that shape us according to the truth of the gospel. I know you'll appreciate hearing from Caitlin this morning as she shares her heart for this generation and her belief that a better kind of politics is possible for young Christians, one that is less focused on outcomes and more focused on process and practice. Hi, JBU. I am so excited to be with you all virtually right now, and then by the time you are seeing this in person for your Faith and Public Life event, which is coming at a perfect time in an election season for us to talk about what it means for us as Christians to faithfully engage the inevitably political world around us. And so as I was preparing for this message, that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I was thinking about how divisive and difficult, you know, all election seasons are, but this one especially feels heavy and difficult for Christians. And it got me thinking about uh, one kind of image of how we tend to approach these issues. It made me think about Thanksgiving dinner. You know, there are people that you might have at Thanksgiving dinner that you don't normally see, family members from all over with different backgrounds and perspectives. Maybe you have family or friends that you don't normally see that are there. And so you've got this mix of people 
And there's probably people that have really strong disagreements with one another. Maybe you have an uncle who's really opinionated on one side and a sibling who's really passionate on the other end and they're gonna fight. And then you've got people who are fighting about sports or who are playing video games or who have a social media disagreement that's now coming out in real life and it's just chaotic. And usually if your family is anything like mine, there's a mom or a grandmother who will say, okay, enough conflict. We are going to have two peaceful hours for Thanksgiving dinner. And so sometimes what that means is here's a list of things that we're not allowed to talk about. And at least two of those are going to be religion and politics. And that's what we're talking about now and what I'm coming to talk to you all about. So that's really fun. <laughs> but we just say we, there are things that we can't talk about. And if we avoid those things, we can have a couple peaceful hours. And that's kind of the word that I want to talk about today, peace, because that's the image a lot of us tend to have about peace. It's Thanksgiving dinner that's kind of awkward and stilted, but at least there's no conflict, right? And I think scripture gives us a fuller and better picture of what peace is and some instructions at the end for how we can seek that peace in our communities and our families and in our churches. So let's start with what's in Galatians. So you all have been talking about the fruit of the spirit, so I won't repeat them to you, but there's really not a description given of any of these individual words, right? They're just listed, peace, in the middle of there. So we know that peace can't conflict with any of these other words, right? There's one fruit of the spirit, it's all of these things. And so peace has to be in line with love and joy and all of the others. And then a few verses above that, we have a description of the acts of the flesh that are in opposition to the fruit of the spirit. So we know peace is not any of these things. And I pulled a few that um, peace especially conflicts with. So peace is not hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. So we know peace isn't any of those things. But again, it's hard to get a bigger picture of what this word means. And the passage doesn't really define it for us, but it, the good news is I don't think it really has to. This is one story, one book that is, you know, one grand redemptive story for God's people. And so we can look elsewhere to kind of see this one word used here in this context, what it means more fully. And so one of the things especially that we tend to talk about when it comes to this word peace is the Hebrew word that we tend to translate peace, which is shalom. It's a word we're usually pretty familiar with. Um, I have a little necklace that says shalom on it. <laughs> People tend to know it because it's a, a greeting or a farewell in Hebrew. And so it's a word we're pretty familiar with. And we tend to translate it in our Old Testaments, peace, sometimes prosperity, but very often peace. And yet it doesn't really mean what we tend to mean when we say the word peace. What we tend to mean is kind of two things. One, absence of conflict. So two countries who are not at war are at peace to family members or friends, they might not be you know, having a great relationship, they might not really be talking, but at least there's peace, right? There's no conflict. Um, and then the second way we tend to think about peace is individual. We tend to think, you know, I have got some kind of inner contentment, maybe I'm praying or I'm meditating and the world around me is chaotic, but in myself, I have comfort, I have peace. Neither of those is really what this Hebrew word shalom means. First, shalom means something bigger. It means something more like flourishing, wholeness, um, things as they are supposed to be. So the world is created good, sin enters and corrupts and breaks. And, and then shalom is when things are restored back to some semblance, maybe a little closer to what they are intended to be, when there is something made right in a community. And that's the second part. Shalom is an inherently social concept. 
you know, things are not just about an individual, most of scripture, you know, their identity is based on their community more often than not. But especially with this word, it's not about inner feelings or experience. It's about communities being reconciled to each other, uh, God being reconciled to whole communities, people being reconciled to creation. Um, It's an inherently social concept. So this makes Jesus's frequent command in the gospels, go in peace, make more sense, right? He's giving a, a kind of farewell, a normal sort of greeting, but also he has usually right before this performed a miracle, maybe a healing. And so someone came to him with brokenness, with corruption, with sin in their life or suffering that wasn't their fault. And he brought wholeness. And so the go in peace is go in a more whole way than you were before. Go and take that peace with you as you leave. Um, Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world does. So it's different. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. This is a farewell term. Jesus is kind of finishing talking, but he's also probably referring, a lot of scholars think, to the coming of the Holy Spirit that will be there soon. So the Holy Spirit, this agent of internal wholeness for us, is then the source of our seeking wholeness in our communities. And this all culminates in Revelation's vision of eternal reconciliation between God and us, us and each other, us and creation. It says in 21.5, and the one seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So it's not using that word peace, but it's just such a good picture to me of what shalom, what this fuller vision of peace really means, all things made new. All things redeemed, restored, perfected, brought back to, and not just reverting back to an original condition, but but made whole. The pieces taken and brought back together perfectly. So that's what peace is. So what does this fuller definition of peace have to do with us, right? If peace is a fruit of the spirit, we can't create this eternal reconciliation. We can't create the kind of inner peace that only the Holy Spirit can bring in other people. And so what does it look like for us to display this fruit of the spirit in our lives? And for us to talk about that, there's one passage that I'm going to go to that's probably not one you would expect, but it's one of my favorites and one of my favorite books, Jeremiah. So I'm a little biased. I love, love, love Jeremiah. It's one of the first things I ever got to teach on. I had a blog for a while where I used a line from Jeremiah as the title. And one of the reasons I so identify with Jeremiah is probably one you all can share with. Jeremiah is really young. God gives him a message for God's people. He is afraid. Um... And he has to say really hard things to people and he doesn't get a lot of success in his life. (laughs) He doesn't see a lot of the fruit of his faithfulness. And that can be a real encouragement to a lot of us, especially right now. So this is how Jeremiah's mission is kind of introduced in chapter one. It says, the word of the Lord came to me in verse four, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then Jeremiah says, alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. The Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So first of all, I think we can all relate. He's young, God gives him this message. Um, God tells him actually later that part of his job means he's not allowed to go to any parties or weddings. So maybe all of us can relate right now to not to being young, not allowed to go to any parties and maybe having a message for God's people that they don't want to hear. 
So Jeremiah has, it's a really long book. He says a lot of things to God's people, but there's one uh, passage that gives a pretty good encapsulation of his message. It's just a simple overview of everything that he really says over and over again. And it's in chapter seven, it's his famous temple sermon. And so God tells him, stand at the temple gate, say this to the people as they're coming. It's a prominent location. And these are the words, some of them. This is starting in verse three. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever." But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So not a popular message. (laughs) Jeremiah is supposed to go to the people and say, here's all the ways you're sinning. He doesn't say it here, but part of his message early in his ministry is the Babylonians are coming. You need to repent or they're going to come get you. And then even more unpopularly, later in his ministry, he has to say, sorry, it's too late. The Babylonians are coming whether you like it or not. You still need to repent. But now you actually need to allow yourself to be taken into exile. There's no fighting it anymore. You shouldn't try and, you know, go to battle with them. You should let them take you because this is your punishment. And God is going to use this eventually. But for now, you need to repent. So he has this incredibly unpopular message, especially uh, with the people who are going to the temple, trying to be good Jews, trying to offer sacrifices, and yet going out and mistreating the most vulnerable people in their society, especially the foreigners, the widows, the orphans, those who had very little legal rights, and yet whose God's people among all the nations were specifically told, you are supposed to care for these people. These people that other nations have no reason to do anything but mistreat, you are supposed to especially care for them. You're supposed to put in place policies in your community that make sure that they are cared for. And they were failing at that. So one of the messages Jeremiah says so often that it's recorded twice in the book, these exact words, is about the false prophets. So Jeremiah is going around saying, you know, the Babylonians are coming. At some point he's saying, you got to just let it happen. And then there are these false prophets that are saying the things that people more likely wanted to hear, right? God wouldn't judge us that way. God wouldn't destroy us. This might be a familiar message to some of us. God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Why would he, why would he allow you to suffer like this? So this is what Jeremiah says about these false prophets. He says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They're not calling sin, sin. They're not calling evil, evil. Peace, peace, they say when there is no peace. Peace, peace, shalom, they say, when there is no shalom. They say that things as they are, where we are mistreating the most vulnerable people in our society, where we're going to the temple and offering sacrifices, but then not living up to the commands God has given us, they're saying that that's how things are supposed to be, and it's not. That's the word shalom that he's using. The false prophets are false because they are lying, they are deceiving God's people, They're saying that everything's okay when it really simply isn't. So this finally brings us to the actual passage that I want to talk about, (laughs) Jeremiah 38. Kind of a strange story, but one of my favorites. 
It's one of the many places where Jeremiah is doing what he's doing. He's telling Israel, hey, you got to repent, hear your sins. He's gotten far enough in his ministry that at this point he's saying, there's no turning back. The Babylonians are coming and you have to let yourself be taken into exile. You're too far gone at this point. God will, God will be faithful to you, but not by allowing you to stay in the land. So in a popular message, Jeremiah is telling this, the false prophets are still saying their false promises of safety and security, prosperity, peace, peace when there is no peace. And then in chapter 38, a few prominent men in the city, I'm not going to read that part of the verse because their names are hard to pronounce, but they hear Jeremiah's message and they don't like it, which makes sense. And they go to the king and they declare him a traitor. And that's where we're picking up in verse two. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword. This is Jeremiah. Famine or plague. But whoever goes to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. So the officials say to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers left in this city as well as the people by the things he is saying to them. Here's the key line. This man is not seeking the good, the shalom, of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. So before I move on, don't worry about Jeremiah. He eventually gets out. Someone advocates for him to the king and they bring a bunch of men to pull him out of the cistern. But the important part here is, why did these men call him a traitor? Why did they want him dead? The answer is in that line I noted. This man is not seeking the good in Hebrew, the shalom, the peace, the wholeness, the prosperity of these people, but their ruin. And the irony of this story, I think the reason it's recorded here in scripture for us is that while these men are saying Jeremiah is not seeking the shalom of the city, they are the ones who are actually not seeking the shalom of the city. By claiming that everything's fine, that we should go to battle, we should fight because God is on our side, we will of course be victorious. He wants us to be prosperous. He doesn't want us to suffer. They're the ones who are actually seeking the spiritual and eternal ruin of their people. And Jeremiah, the one running around shouting about destruction, about giving yourself over to the enemy, ironically, He's the one seeking the true shalom of the city of his people. So the leaders are telling the people to stay and fight. Jeremiah is, is exclaiming that that's wrong. It makes sense. If we were people there at the time, I think most of us would agree with the false prophets. That seems like the more obvious place to be, the side to be on. And yet Jeremiah is the one that we know with some distance from the story is the one being faithful to God's actual message to his people. This is the message I want us to take from this story. It's simple. We are not called to be peacekeepers. We are called to be peacemakers. And I have a couple of descriptions that'll help kind of bring out what I'm getting at here. Peacekeepers will dig in their heels and insist that nothing is really wrong. Everything is fine. Peacemakers recognize sin, corruption, and brokenness in the world and seek to redeem and restore it. Peacekeepers defend the status quo, insisting everything is fine just the way it is. Peacemakers know that our present world is broken and they have a vision of God's restoration and redemption, his coming kingdom, and they seek glimpses of it while being honest about where we are now. Peacekeepers want spaces of uniformity where everyone agrees with them or at least stays silent if they don't. 
Peacemakers know that disagreements are the first step toward diverse unity. They welcome disruption because it's often necessary, and they willingly step into uncomfortable places for the sake of others, especially the most vulnerable. Peacekeepers say peace, peace when there is no peace. Peacekeepers throw the guy yelling about destruction into a cistern because he's disrupting the peace. But peacemakers like Jeremiah tell God's people the truth about their sin, and they call them to more faithfully follow God, especially in this case and, and in our world, by protecting and elevating the marginalized and the vulnerable in our communities. Because just like in Jeremiah's day, it's not too different. Many of us think we're safe in our churches, in our religious rituals, and yet we're disobeying God when he says to care for the most vulnerable in our communities. That's the hypocrisy that's being called out here, and it, it unfortunately is often true of our communities as well. Remember when God said to Jeremiah, you know, I have this message for you. And Jeremiah was like, I'm too young. And God said, no, I am with you. This is the end of what he said when he's commissioning Jeremiah. He says he is appointing him over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. That's a terrifying message. <laughs> Up until the very end there, it's all negative. Destroy, tear down, uproot, overthrow. It's a reminder to us that building something new, participating with God in the redemption of creation requires some demolition. It won't always look like health and wealth. It will often look like suffering. So what does that have to do with us? Jeremiah's a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. How can we do that? Remember that Thanksgiving dinner conversation? <laughs> a lot of us are living our whole lives like that. Conflict comes up, we clam up, we wanna wall off all of the difficult conversations. We want unity in our churches and our communities, which is good, but we want it by not dealing with anything difficult or controversial or divisive. That's being a peacekeeper, not a peacemaker. So let's commit to peacemaking, wading into uncomfortable conversations, especially for the sake of others, with both compassion and conviction about our beliefs, while actually listening to others, while trying to tell the truth in love. And so, because I think it's a little helpful, here are three ways for us to be peacemakers and not peacekeepers. One, peacemaking is active, not passive. It's not about avoiding conflict, but wading into difficult conversations in order to seek, if not complete kind of uniformity, diverse unity. Two, it's communal, not individual. Jeremiah also says in the famous 29th chapter of this book that God's people in exile are supposed to seek, you guessed it, the shalom, the peace and prosperity of their whole city. Not just their community, not just God's people, but the whole city. And three, peace comes from God, not ourselves. This is not a call to just get out there, guns blazing, throwing punches, ready to, to disagree with people. This is a call to remember that it says in Ephesians that Jesus himself is our peace. He broke down divisions that we couldn't break down ourselves. He created real spiritual and material unity that we're trying to actualize in our lives. We're trying to be faithful to the vision he's given us, but we can't create it on our own. So go in peace. Go in peace in the sense that you take your internal wholeness and you bring it into your community and seek flourishing and wholeness, even in hard places, not by just keeping the peace but by making real peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.